Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 30th. I'm Ashley Norwood, in for Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, schools near the deadline to submit their plans for a safe return. Then, how a state agency with a director arrested for embezzlement got tangled up in a project involving the former first lady. Plus, in today's book club, two friends take a wilderness canoe trip and find themselves tested by fire, white water, and violence. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi school districts have one more day to submit their reopening plans for the fall as rates of the coronavirus remain high. Governor Tate Reeves, who has been echoing the White House message for students to return to in-person learning, says his team is in the process of reviewing the, the restart plans of the state's public school districts. As schools prepare for the restart, education advocates worry about the number of challenges administrators and teachers face to accommodate guidelines during a period of high community transmission. Ronnie McGeehee is the executive director of the Mississippi Association of School Administrators. He tells our Desiree Frazier busing is one of the many issues educators are confronting. Well, one of the biggest hurdles that they're trying to adjust to is, is the people transportation about every other seat, and the social distancing on the bus is difficult. Schools are just not built uh, for social distancing. We've moved big uh, numbers of students from one place to another uh, on a a pretty regular basis. So uh, superintendents, principals, teachers have been preparing uh, for multiple episodes of, of what does it look like. And as you well know, they've been given three options, uh, the, tra- the traditional, which is basically come to school, have a school day, and get a nutrition and go home. Another one is a, a kind of a hybrid, a little bit of both, and then, of course, the full digital. So do they want to reopen at this point? Yes. I would tell you that educators would love to see their children. I think their children would love to see uh, their educators. Uh, uh, but there's always a caveat to this about what happens when we return uh, mass amounts of humanity uh, to our buildings. Some of our buildings were built in the 50s and 60s 
and they have square foot inside their classroom at 600 square foot, which is the minimum required by the state. Others that were built in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even in 2000s, have been expanded to 750, 800, and some even 1,000 square foot. They will be better prepared from a social distancing standpoint. But yes, educators and, and education, uh, I think, is a, is a group effort. Uh, and that is that when you communicate, uh, you do it more uh, face-to-face, and you also do it uh, socially. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're, I would like to go back to school, but with just the uncertainty of what happens is really weighing on them. Under the circumstances, would administrators have liked more guidance, more guidelines? I know that the Mississippi Department of Education can't tell them when to open and stuff, but under the pandemic, maybe if the governor issued an executive order that allowed that because of the circumstances? Well, remember, we were kind of a, of a, of a home rule when it comes to local control over boards. Our local school board uh, has the authority uh, to set the, the, the calendar. However, the state sets the total number of school days. And we heard that uh, 180 days, and, and that's, there's nothing magic about 180 days other than that's in statute about how many days you'd go to school years ago. We would go for 169 or 170, and as accountability got more and more prevalent, we started requiring more and more days in school. The superintendents uh, and administrations that I've talked to would have liked a little bit more specifics uh, about it and would like a little bit more time. So if the 180-day rule could be released just a little bit, relaxed just a little bit, then they could do what we call as a soft start. And what does that mean? A soft start would be that you bring in 50% of your building uh, on Monday and the other 50% on Tuesday, and you alternate. And then you maybe have a disinfecting day on Wednesday, or you do every other day, A, B, A, B, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then a distance learning day on Friday. So you can really... Uh, prepare the educators and also the students and parents about this new environment. Dr. Ronnie McGeehee is the executive director of the Mississippi Association of School Administrators. Other public school advocates like Nancy Loom of the Parents Campaign say there is a lack of statewide leadership on the issue rooted in a reluctance to fully fund public education. She says educators want to be in the classroom, but the current environment is less than ideal. Teachers and school districts are in a terrible position. Teachers want to be in their classrooms with their students. Um, And we know from our experience last spring that online learning is inferior to in-person learning, particularly for young students. And that um, is exacerbated by chronic underfunding that public schools have experienced for decades now. We are in the middle of a pandemic that is killing people by the thousands. And so teachers and parents are right to be concerned. Uh, Teachers about their own health and the health of their students and the health of their students' families. The setting, the school setting, is very different from for example, a retail setting or the the employment settings of most other essential workers. They will be in crowded classrooms with 
dozens of other students all day long for hours and hours. Uh, They will be eating lunch in those crowded classrooms to try to avoid an even more crowded cafeteria, and they will not be wearing masks. They can't wear masks while they're eating lunch in those classrooms. And, And so it's exactly the kind of crowd that our public health officials and even Governor Reeves have been begging people for weeks to avoid. Schools have been told that they have to submit their reopening plans. The deadline is this Friday, July 31st. The governor said that he will be reviewing those plans, and he has said in press conferences that some of them aren't too good. How do you feel about this approach to looking at plans to reopen schools? It is very late. It is very late. Um, and I'm not sure what criteria the governor is using to determine his opinion about those plans. But the governor is neither uh, an educator nor is he uh, a healthcare expert. Um, I know that he has been working very closely with Dr. Dobbs, but sometimes in these uh, press conferences, their statements, Dr. Dobbs' statements about the reopening of schools, uh, appear to conflict with the governor's statements about the reopening of schools. And, and, and let me say that there really are no perfect solutions here. There, there really are no great choices. But schools are doing the very best they can in a very difficult position. And I, I think tough talk from government officials isn't helping the situation. They need to be working with our school district leadership to come up with some solutions that are workable and are safe. And I guess there's the question that if the governor comes across a plan that he doesn't think is sufficient, the time that the district will have to revise that plan, implement it, and submit it again, potentially while school is going on. Right. It it, it is it's a very difficult situation, and I think that's why we're seeing some school districts delay their reopening to have time to deal with those things. And they have parents who understandably are concerned about sending their children into these classrooms. And so school districts really are in a tough spot. Um, and it's just disappointing that, that what we're hearing is is a lot of tough talk instead of, reaching out and an offer to to collaborate and work together to try to do what's really best for children. Well, Nancy Loom with the Parents Campaign, we appreciate your time and your insight on this very critical issue. It was good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. District restart plans are due tomorrow. Several school districts are delaying the start of school to have more time to review plans and see if coronavirus cases decline. Coming up, how a state agency with a director arrested for embezzlement got tangled up in a project involving the former First Lady. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the Lady Auto Mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ashley Norwood. The Mississippi Center for Medically Fragile Children was a passion project for Deborah Bryant. The center, presented as the first pediatric skilled nursing facility in the state of Mississippi, ceremoniously broke ground in December with Bryant in attendance. We want to get this right. We want to get it so right that other states want to mirror what we've done here. Because you always want to be a state of the art. And we wanted a very home-like atmosphere. Now, the former First Lady is cutting formal ties with the Long Plan Home as a nonprofit affiliated with the project is quietly dissolving. Jack Baloney is an investigative reporter with the Clarion Ledger. He shares more with our Karen Brown about the center, a church, and a dream derailed. More than a decade ago now, uh, Calvary Baptist uh, Church, which is in uh, kind of the downtown Jackson area, uh, became interested in potentially um, renovating uh, part of its uh, building to bring a permanent home to kids with medically complex diseases. Uh, the church has a massive amount of unused space, uh, and there are currently, you know, a handful of children uh, living at UMMC, uh, their children's hospital, and some other hospitals outside of the state, uh, just because they have these very complex uh, medical issues. And so, um, you know, the church started to get involved in this project, and uh, Deborah Bryant, who was then uh, the first lady, uh, also, um, you know, she, she, she became very interested and involved. And over time, she kind of became the public face of the project. Uh, and over time, also, the church uh, got cut out of the, uh, the plans, actually. That was not uh, voluntary on their part. They wanted to hang on to that, didn't they? Yes, yeah. So, um as you know, Deborah Bryant got involved, so too did uh, the Department of Human Services, uh, and then also even Families First, which was uh, the name that most folks know, the Mississippi Community Education Center by a, a nonprofit that Nancy knew ran. Um, and uh, it was actually the Department of Human Services, an official there, that uh, would send an email in 2017 uh, to the partners of Calvary Baptist Church saying, you know, we're not interested in using this site anymore. And to the folks at Calvary, they told me that it came as kind of a complete shock to them. Um, you know, they had been working for years on this project, and they really thought it could be done. Um, but then to kind of gradually see this state agency, the Department of Human Services, kind of get involved in it, and then being the one to say, we don't think you're viable anymore, um, really surprised them. And uh, I think what's especially interesting is that if you ask the folks at DHS now, you know, what the Department of Human Services was supposed to even be doing on that project, um, uh, spokesman said he doesn't know. Ground was broken. I know that because the ground was broken right next. It's adjacent to Mississippi Public Broadcasting. That, and it was all cleared out there. That part, that area is now overgrown. Nothing was ever built on that site. Is this still a viable project or do they still expect to build a hospital there? Yes, it's definitely still a viable project, and they do expect to uh, build or start construction in 2021. Uh, and, and I believe that when they did do the groundbreaking ceremony in 2019, they said that you know, we're breaking ground now. But I think the construction was always supposed to start later, you know. Um, but, you know, the church I was involved in all this had hoped that by now, you know, their project might have been operational. So there was a nonprofit that was called Mississippi Center for Medically Fragile Children. That was the name of the nonprofit? 
Yes. That was raising money. How much money was raised through that nonprofit? And is that nonprofit now still raising money? Is Has it dissolved? What's the situation with that? Yeah, so according to uh, the most recent tax documents from uh, fiscal year 2018, the uh, nonprofit it raised about $2.4 million, and uh, one of the board members told me that it never really raised any much or much more than that. Um, and uh, that nonprofit is now in the process of being dissolved. I'm not totally sure if it's dissolved or not, and it's supposed to be turning over all of its remaining money to UMMC, which is taking on the project. However, yeah, UMMC was actually a major donor to that nonprofit uh, and gave them about a million dollars. So, you know, uh, part of that is just kind of, you know, them returning that million dollars to UMMC. You said that Mississippi taxpayers are going to end up paying for this to the tune of how much? Uh, well, the state bonds were approved for $14.5 million, according to uh, UMMC. So, yeah, $14.5 million. As you said, former First Lady Deborah Bryant was sort of the public face of this. Is she still involved with this? Well, she was, or she is the chairman, or chairwoman of the nonprofit, which is now dissolving. And then also in last September, she went on, you know, the Paul Gallo show uh, to talk about how, you know, she was kind of, uh, how the nonprofit was giving kind of control or total control of the project over to UMMC. So uh, formally less so, yes. Did your investigation show that Nancy New was instrumental in taking the project away from Calvary Baptist Church? No, uh, I, no, it, it did not. Um, I think there just was simply, you know, there's just not a lot of public information about exactly what her role was uh, in the whole project. Uh, but, but what I found most interesting was that it was DHS that was the one uh, was, was the group that told Calvary Baptist essentially that they were no longer a viable option. Your investigative piece in the Clarion Ledger is very extensive and obviously very well researched. How long did this investigation take you? Uh, I first noticed, I guess, the Mississippi Center for Medically Fragile Children months ago when we first started kind of uh, looking into and investigating all the kind of involvement uh, of families first. Um, But really, it's only been in recent weeks that I got a chance to kind of return to that subject. Were there people who didn't talk to you? Who shut you down? I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, was there a cloud of secrecy around this? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I, um, I I don't think so. I think everyone I talked to was, you know, pretty forthright. You know, it would have been great if Nancy knew had, uh, would, you know, had, had spoken with me or at least the court attorney had spoken with me. That's one thing that, you know, that has not been, um, that we have not heard from in all these months so far is that, you know, the, the, the people involved in that uh, welfare embezzlement scandal have, have not spoken, um, whether that's um, Nancy New or John Davis, the former head of DHS, uh, or, um, you know, Brett DiBiase. You know, these are folks that I think definitely have stories to tell. And, and I think, you know, what a lot of people maybe don't realize is just how flexible that TANF money can be used, that welfare money can be used. And so I think it'll be very interesting whether they do break their silence um, or whether later it comes out during these court cases, uh, what these folks have to say. So many pieces to this puzzle. Where can people read your article? 
Yeah, if they go to the Clarion Ledger website, it's just clarionledger.com. Um, it's on our website right now. Uh, it is a subscriber-only story, subscriptions that really allow us to do this type of more in-depth and investigative work. Giacomo Bologna is a reporter for the Clarion Ledger. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Coming up in today's book club, two friends take a wilderness canoe trip and find themselves tested by fire, white water, and violence. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. Join me on Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast about the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. And of course, all of MPB's other great podcasts are there too. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Coming August 1st to your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Ashley Norwood. A longtime contributor to NPR and best-selling author Peter Heller writes The River. In it is a canoe trip, a woman who vanishes, white water, violence, and a friendship tested. As Heller tells us, the impetus for the book came from a conversation he had many years ago with someone he just met. When I was like 17, I was in love for the first time, and I was at a little boarding school in Vermont, and my girlfriend Margaret's mom lived in New Hampshire on this little lake, and we'd go over there sometimes for the weekend. We have these big dinners. I just thought it was the best thing ever. But one <laughs> night in the fall, there was this guy leaning against the wall, kind of charismatic, kind of curly-headed, handsome guy, maybe in his late 20s. And everyone was treating him kind of gingerly. And someone said, yeah, he makes his living in a canoe. He's a geochemist. And he goes on these expeditions and you know studies rivers all over the place. And my ears perked up because that's kind of what I wanted to do. I love the outdoors. And so I went over and said, um, hey, you know, what's going on? He said, well, I lost my wife this summer. And he said, well, I was on this expedition in Labrador. We were in a canoe, the two of us. And she got up in the morning, went over a berm to go to the bathroom, and I never saw her again. And my jaw sort of dropped. And I, I said, well, was there a bear sign? Was it a bear attack? No. Did you search for it? Yeah, of course. For a few days, I, I couldn't find anything. And I walked away from that talk, and I knew he was lying. <laughs> but other people believed him, obviously, if they were handling him gingerly. Yeah. Oh, no, everybody did. The law and, you know, everybody. But I knew, you know, I just, just had this certainty that the guy was lying, that he somehow disposed of his wife. And I must have been thinking about that for like 40 years, because when I came to started with my first line and you know started writing into the story, that's sort of the story that, that, that appeared. <laughs> so it's the first line of your prologue. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let me read the first line. They had been smelling smoke for two days. That's what starts your story. So I wrote that, and then all of a sudden there were these two young guys, best friends, in this canoe on this lake way, way north in Canada by Hudson Bay, and stuff started to happen. (laughs) Yeah, things go awry pretty quickly. There is sort of mysteriously a man and a woman who are heard fighting. Is that where the first story you just told us, that's where that part comes in? It turns out that the man and the woman fighting were this guy and his wife. You know, this guy that I had met in New Hampshire, and I just imagined him, you know, up there, what might have happened. 
It's funny because when I first saw that it was about these two guys going canoeing and things start going wrong, I immediately thought of deliverance. I'm sure other people will think of that, too, when they see what the book is about. Yeah, you know, good good eye, because I tip my hat to James Dickey, because, you know, it is the iconic canoe trip gone wrong book for sure. Do you have any say in the layout of the print in your book? Because there are a lot of spaces between dialogue. It's laid out differently than other books. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I insist on it. You know, ever since I started, I wrote The Dog Stars in 2012. I did it that way. Uh, double space between paragraphs, between quotations. There are various reasons I did it. I mean, I came up as a poet. I like writing that's compressed, that comes in sort of in a mosaic, like tiles. You know, I think it affects the way I write when I do that, when I, when I sort of make the paragraphs stand out more. Yeah, it does look like stanzas. That makes sense that you'd be a poet and that it would be laid out that way. Yeah, I think it just focuses more attention to each line. And so I have to be more careful about each word, I think, and try and put more power into each stanza, so to speak. It's funny, you know, when Dog Stars got first published in Germany, I showed up (laughs) my escort there. So you have these literary people, you know, these people that meet you and take you to your hotel mm-hmm. and all that and take you around to your readings. And she um, handed me the book. I was like in shock because the, the Germans had just put all the paragraphs together and made one big block of text. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what happened? She said, well, German people wouldn't understand these spaces. <laughs> Come on. Peter Heller is the author of The River. And I thank you so much for talking with us today. That is fine. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.